Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Moments with Maya. Conversations of love and laughter. The show where each week your host, social worker and certified humor professional, Maya Aziz, invites someone who is out there pushing the positive to join her for a heartfelt and often hilarious coffee conversation about love, laughter, leadership, and, well, life. Love and laughter might not cure what ails you, but they sure go a long way to getting you through those tough life moments. So sit back, pour yourself a cup, and get ready to laugh and learn today on Morning Moments. Look for the good. It is all around. Good morning, friends. It sure is all around. You just have to want to see it. It's Maya here on this first Sunday in October, a month that brings with it all the early signs of fall, the beautiful sight of slowly coloring leaves, the smell of pumpkin pie, the glorious taste of beer and sausages, and the sounds of adorable accordion-playing men in lederhosen. It is also often the time of that other wonderful annual rite in many businesses. It's performance appraisal season. That's right. As managers break out in sweats trying to figure out how to meet with all of their reports before December's bonus season, employees everywhere cower with dread at this annual frenzy of self-evaluations, competency scoring, and anxiety-provoking meetings with the boss. But do all these competency assessments, performance reviews, or my favorite new term, appreciation of contribution meetings, actually accomplish what we are hoping for? Do they really give us a true account of an employee's value or their potential, And do they actually ever help anyone develop or grow? A study published in the Journal of Applied Psychology in which over 4,000 managers were rated, it was one of these 360 evaluations, they were rated on certain performance dimensions by bosses, peers, and subordinates. It revealed that 62% of the variance in the ratings could be accounted for by individual raters' peculiarities of perception. Actual performance accounted for only 21% of the variance. In simple terms, this means research shows that ratings may reveal more about the rater than they do about the ratee. So... What is the point of all these hours and energy going into meeting quotas of employee evaluations that HR requires us to do? Are we so focused on evaluating past performance that we're forgetting that the point is to nourish future development? As managers and leaders, is there a way to move from random critique to sustained coaching? Well, am I ever excited to have with me today a guest who's going to help me figure some of this out. 
Vadim Mercurio, QA Operations Manager at VMC and graduate of the International Academy of Design and Technology in Video Game Design and Development, does anything but play games in his role as leader, mentor, and coach in the workplace. Understanding that true employee development requires a relationship and that traditional forms of performance management do little to build competence, business, or trust, I am thrilled to have Adam here with me to share a conversation about some of the potential shortcomings of old school performance appraisals and how to truly elevate, not just evaluate, our most important resources our human resources. Vadim, welcome to the show. Good morning, Maya. My goodness, what an introduction. I hope I can live <laughs> up to that uh, set of expectations. Maybe we can do a <laughs> review towards the end and you can let me know how I rated. Ah! <laughs> I've got my scale already. <laughs> awesome. It's going to be wonderful. I'm so glad you could join me bright and early on a Sunday morning. I want to start. I want to start with understanding where your own, I know you have a particular interest in this topic. What inspired you to start looking at alternative means of employee feedback and performance management? Well, I mean, it's really twofold, and I think you touched on it a little bit in the introduction. Um, I've gone through this process um, on both sides of the equation. I've been reviewed extensively through different systems, and I've also used them to do reviews of, my goodness, hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. And it it never sat well with me, uh, whether I was on the receiving end or the um, doling out end, for lack of a better term. I always found that there was something lacking in the system. First of all, uh, the amount of hours and energy and uh, blood, sweat, and tears that is invested in this process is astronomical. It is nonsensical to me that a company with a few hundred employees will be dropping tens of thousands of hours into this process, whether it's the employee's own self-evaluation and the anxiety that they pour into that, these 360 reviews that get anywhere from three to 10 people to assess every person. And of course you have to then multiply that by every person. Then you have calibration efforts at your management levels to ensure that your outliers aren't outlying too far because that has a negative impact on everybody, Um, as well as just the kind of revisiting and revisiting because every manager, their own sense of anxiety at, well, I'm holding this person's future in my hand. And right now our company is set up that the only way I'm going to give this person any money is based on this appraisal and the amount of pressure that that generates is, is, is silliness and it slows the process. So again, you're talking about tens and fifteens of thousands of hours invested in a process that's protracted over months. And that to me just felt like make work. It felt utterly nonsensical. So I started investigating alternatives. The other side to it is the fact that when I went through the process, it just never felt particularly genuine. There was a lot of metrics involved. Uh, They were massively subjective, as you've already identified. Um, Assuming you're a company that doesn't do one thing, literally a singular effort that every employee shares, which I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an industry where that's true, 
the metrics that you're using and the bar that you're setting and the key performance indicators that you're using, they're all geared towards some kind of homogenized workforce where the expectations are the same for everyone, even though their day-to-day deliverables can be massively different. There might not be a single point of commonality, and yet we're basing our analysis on this common good that just kind of doesn't exist. None of that sat well with me. So here we are. Uh, I can relate so much to everything that you just said. It's interesting. I recently um, attended a training on a new um, sort of a software program for doing performance appraisals. And my first thought was, oh, my goodness, this is quite a beautiful system. It was really elaborate and well done and the competencies and all the rest of it you can just imagine. And then my thought was, holy cannoli, the amount of time that went into just developing the software and then training people to use it. Um, As you said, we're talking about thousands and thousands of hours. And then you sort of question, and then what does it lead to in terms of actual change? Um, I'm curious in your own experience, you know, you, you talk about having seen this from both sides of the coin, being someone who was evaluated, as we all have been. Can you comment on to what extent those evaluations that you yourself had actually led to your own development or not? My goodness. Um, At the risk of being too black and white on the topic, I would say almost categorically not. Um, I would go through (laughs) this process. (laughs) I would go through this process of, as I mentioned before, self-evaluating first, um, identifying goals that I feel like I may or may not have attained and, and how far I went in those goals. Um, and then sitting through a process where a person on the opposite end of the table with me from me who hopefully knows me reasonably well and has some knowledge of what my day-to-day is like, but let's be clear, that's a hope. Our managers <laughs> tend to have way too many direct reports to actually have situational awareness at that level, unfortunately. And that's a whole other topic. But it really felt like a a routine of, well, exactly that, a routine. It felt like going through the, jumping through the hoops and hitting all the checks and balances that really didn't resonate with me in any way. And most importantly, it was all about stuff that happened anywhere from three to 12 months ago, the relevance mm-hmm. of the discussion just felt non-existent effectively. I appreciated an opportunity to, you know, have little bits and pieces of moments in which to sell myself and to try and sing my own praises and to also hopefully exercise some small measure of humbleness as much as that might be a challenge and to try and address maybe any shortcomings that I had or areas for improvement, but it really felt like I was speaking for my own entertainment and that it really just (laughs) came down to a series of checkboxes that were being filled in. And again, this isn't, I wish, I wish we could be talking about me sitting down for an hour and dealing with this for the manager. But in fact, we're talking about, as you identified, a process that starts in October and the companies that are lucky finish it by the end of the year, but I've had many experiences where this is protracted well into March of the following year. 
I, I'm not interested in dedicating what 45% of my year to this process. It's, it's better nonsense. When you put it like that, 45%, and you're right, I'm sort of doing the math in my head, you know, depending on how many reports, and there are managers who have, you know, they can have up to 200. Even if you were to do it as fast and efficiently as possible, it is an enormous amount of the year. And often every year, um, it's a little bit uh, crazy. I, I thought you made another great point in terms of the timeliness of this supposed feedback process. Um, I can relate to that as well, you know, having had times where, you know, is that sit down time, the once a year, and you, you find yourself talking about things that happened, you know, 11 months earlier and saying, listen, I wish we could have had a conversation when this actually happened. It might have changed how everything evolved, but of course, at that point, it's too late. It's, it's not helpful at all. And so what does it actually lead to? Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because performance management is something that we need to do. It, we have to sort of have a sense of how people are performing and keep tabs on it and, and do something in terms of managing it. If these traditional performance appraisals don't address that, what is their purpose? What purpose do these traditional performance appraisals actually serve? Why are we doing them? Wow. Okay. Well, um, I think I'm going to sound horribly pessimistic here, but I think one of the big <laughs> driving forces in these sort of systems is to give a sense of complacent confidence to our corporate enterprises to these companies that want to be able to say, yes, we go through this process. They want to be able to have an employee onboarding where they're demonstrating themselves as a choice employer, where people are going to feel that they're going to grow and be recognized and be, you know, a, a key contributor to the success of the company in whatever role they might have. And one of the great checkboxes to be able to tick is to say, you know, we have a rigorous performance management system and we're going to meet with you and we're going to evaluate you over a ton of different metrics that have been researched worldwide. And we're really going to make sure that you understand your value to us. And to an employee on the outside looking in before realizing that that's five months out of their life, wow, that <laughs> sounds great. That's really appealing. I want, I want to be measured because in the end we are absolutely all, looking for feedback we're looking for validation and that's not a negative at all that's not about being needy or being insecure but the reality is in a vacuum insecurity trumps confidence every time so if you work in a silo and you get no feedback and you get no interaction imposter syndrome is real you're gonna believe that you don't know what you're doing, you're going to question your success, you're going to question the validity, and you're going to end up in this paralytic fear where you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You have this notion that it's just a matter of time before somebody realizes that I'm just winging it here, that I don't really know what I'm doing, and it's all going to come crashing down. So, on the outset, telling people that you have this system that's going to protect them from all of that sounds great. In addition, they're so directly tied to how you handle compensation year over year and how you uh, 
uh, accommodate for standard of living increases and whatnot. Again, it's an, a sense of complacency in that, well, we'll pay some people to build out this software. The software is going to be super robust. We'll keep other people working by training everybody on how to use that software. And it's going to be a, a self-perpetuating machine that's just going to handle the bulk of this work for us. And it's really going to mitigate the need for any significant original thought or time investment because putting time into a system where everything is laid out for you and the groundwork is already there and the framework is there so that you don't have to think outside of the box. More often than not, especially when you're busy and you're at the top level, you want that structure. You want somebody to tell you how to think and what process to go through because that's less painful, even if it's protracted and longer from start to finish. So again, I think it's all about complacency. I, and I think you're right. I don't think you're pessimistic. I think you're pretty accurate. Um, it's interesting, you know, what you were just saying because, you know, I think it probably feels easier to have this structure and everything laid out for you, but it really is not less time, um, and it still causes stress. And it's stress without the outcome that you're actually hoping for. Um, I, I like how you said, you know, that feedback, feedback itself is positive and people want it. As you say, people want to feel validated. They want to feel secure, but it's the how we're doing it that is problematic. So what would make feedback more effective? What would be the factors um, in a different kind of a system that would make it more valuable? I mean, when we break it down in a conversation like this, it sounds painfully obvious, but for some reason it, it, it seems to be missed at every level, and that's timeliness. Feedback is effective when it's as close to immediate as is conceivable. Um, every deliverable you have, every product that you have to turn around, every step that you have to take, it's incumbent upon you as a manager to bake in time necessary for checks and balances, not only in terms of the success of the product itself, but the success of the people that are delivering the product, because it's really hard to have one without the other. So allotting in advance the kind of time necessary to sit down with your key direct reports and say, well, how did that process feel for you? Here are my concerns. Here are the positives. Here are the negatives. Talk about all of it. And there's this knee-jerk reaction that, wow, well, there's no way I could possibly invest that kind of time. That's just not something, you know, I have all of these direct reports. I have all of these deliverables. That just can't happen. But the reality is more often than not as a manager, you get some say in the timeline associated with your deliverables and how you spend that time. It's an economy and you use it intelligently, hopefully. But more importantly, it's really just a difference between front end and back end work. We, we've itemized already a couple of times that we're talking about a system traditionally that's protracted over anywhere from two to five months in my experience uh, might even be worse for some people. The amount of time you're investing then is abs under no circumstances less than the amount of time you would be investing if you had a system of checks and balances where at the end of every sprint or at the end of every product cycle, or even as simply as once a month, 
you're sitting down with your direct reports and giving them feedback that's relevant to the task at hand and to the initiatives that they're working on today. I would even argue that if you're doing it properly, which is a vague term, I'll admit, but if you get into a routine where this happens and they know what to expect and they're engaged and you're doing the same, I'm almost certain that you're going to invest significantly less time than with the traditional models. You're right. It's funny that you said, you know, there's a, a knee-jerk reaction to this idea of feeling that as managers, we don't have the time for that. And I have to confess, you can't see me, but my knee was jerking over here <laughs> because my first <laughs> thought when you were saying that was, that's impossible. <laughs> there's no way that there's time for that. But then as you kept on talking, you're right. When I look at the time that we're spending with this other model, um, of appraisals, for sure there's time. It's just a matter of how we're organizing it and when we're doing it and how much more effective, of course, it's going to be um, at the moment at the completion of a project or the completion of some sort of a process that makes good sense. However, I think I'm going to play devil's advocate just again. <laughs> At, you know, especially in businesses where we're talking about things like bonuses and advancements and other kinds of, you know, raises, recognition, how do we function without some sort of standardized review process? And I'm going to add, you know, in unionized settings where having to make sure that you can show that you're being fair as you're recognizing people is so, so important how do we reconcile those two things if we don't have a standardized process with, you know, scales or checklists or whatever it might be? Well, to be fair, I don't think you can realistically entirely abolish any sets of, of key performance indicators. Every business needs to have them to some degree. I think the, the, the linchpin in being successful in these kind of efforts is for that not to be the end all and be all of your system. Use metrics, use items that are quantifiable because in the end, we all need to justify our decisions and having a little bit of hard data to back informed opinions goes a long way, especially with people on the far end of the process who don't know you and don't know how valuable your opinion might be as a manager. Mm -hmm. So those systems need to exist to some small degree. I think the key is in making systems that, first of all, do incorporate some automation, um, despite my, my indications to the contrary earlier. Having software that collects data is fantastic. Yes, it's some front-end work to build out those tools, and they need to be customizable and editable, of course. But by having some level of automation in gathering that data, in the long run, you're freeing up some of that time. As a, that way, a manager can focus on the less quantifiable items, on the way they feel about an employee and what they've seen and, you know, going back through their memory and looking through results as opposed to the minutia. This is a real positive, and we should absolutely continue to make use of them. That said, they have to be flexible enough that they're not the end-all and be-all, and they're not the same for every employee. I do not believe that an administrative assistant should have the same key performance indicators that a warehouse worker should have, both of which are absolutely going to exist in more than the average companies. These indicators need to be tailored to the job at hand. 
Um, a manager needs to do the front end work right at the start to say, here's my software, here's my tool. If you exist in our company for any position, here are the ones that matter for this one and here are the ones that don't. In a perfect world, I would even take it a step further and say, here's weights associated to those. Yes, this is true. I need this person to be able to communicate, but that's not as important to me as their ability to work with this piece of software, whatever that thing might be. So being able to assign weights and balances to the relevant KPI is huge. So assuming you can put all of that together, which I'll grant you isn't a simple task, but given the labor that we're putting into these other more inclusive systems, it's probably a value add that is less work than the alternative once again. Once you have this sense. data, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, once, you, once you have this data, you've got a starting point. And I think there's value in that starting point. You just can't stop there. If you simply treat it as a metric and say, this is the number that represents you, let's try to get that number higher next year, <laughs> that, that's not useful to anybody um, <laughs> except to put the process behind you and be done with it until next year. Um, one of the systems that I'm really, really fond of that works well with what I'm describing now is a nine box system where you effectively have two axes with three check boxes per axis. Your vertical axis, sorry, let's start with your horizontal axis is performance. Let those metrics that you've gathered fill that equation for you. If the metrics are high and robust and track well against any service level agreements that you might have, well, then you're far to the right on that scale. If they're tracking a little low, if they're below the median for your team, or they're, in worst case scenario, not meeting service le level agreements, then you're very much to the left on this scale. Where things get exciting, as far as I'm concerned, is your vertical slice, where you're talking about potential as opposed to performance potential and this is where your management team gets to shine where their years of experience their knowledge and most importantly the time and effort that they've invested not only on the key product but on the people themselves interactions day to day lend value to that assessment this is my experience with this person. This is what I felt in dealing with them. This is how I see them respond and react to day-to-day -day issues. This is their potential in my mind. And the higher on the scale they are, the higher on that vertical they are. And the lower on the scale they are, the lower on that vertical. It's pretty obvious. So what you end up with is these nine boxes where on the bottom left, you're looking at somebody who really needs some intervention, somebody who's for, for whatever reason, not living up to expectations. And if it's not addressed, you're, they're going to flounder. It'll only get worse. So it needs to be addressed sooner than later. And then on the top right of this scale, you've got your superstars, the people who are performing circles around everyone else and have yet to reach their full potential. These are the people that you want to invest most heavily in, in my opinion. So this system, yes, you're still doing some level of performance management, but again, the data that you're working with is collated for you. You're not investing your time in that effort. And the time you are investing 
is putting your own personal experience, your own trust and faith and knowledge in a person to paper. And quite honestly, in my experience as a manager, that's a more satisfying process even for me in doing the, going through those steps, being able to say, this is how I feel about this person. This is what my gut tells me. And because I'm good at my job and because my company has placed faith in me and my experience, I know that my gut feeling means something. It has value. That's validating to everybody. And typically, if you have a good relationship with your employees, that's validating to them as well. They want to know that it's not just the math that is assessing them. Mm -hmm. Because no matter how good your math is, it doesn't take into account every conceivable variable. It doesn't take into account, well, for lack of a better term, the excuses. This is why this metric was, is low. And I want to have a, time, a chance to speak to that. Mm -hmm. and does that make sense? Oh, it does. It does. You've got my, you have both my brain and my heart buzzing over here. I love this model. <laughs> Um, you know, and there's, and there's a couple of things that come to mind. One though is, you know, you were talking about, it's almost as though you're talking about the difference between performance management and people management. And, you know, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is when I look at what is often the pattern of how people advance to management, it is often the high performers, right? They're really good at their jobs. And so they become team leaders and then they are really good at that. And they become, you know, they go up a little bit higher and higher. It's not necessarily, I mean, it is sometimes, but it's not necessarily people who uh, have actual people management skills. Like you talk about, you know, trusting your gut and using your gut and feeling validated when you're able to do that. Is that actually, though, a competency of all managers? And if not, then what? So if we look at our environment, I would say it isn't necessarily. But I would also say that that's one of the key problems. If we're looking to solve a situation that we have to look at certain root causes, and some of the root causes behind this is that we love to elevate people past their competence. We love to promote <laughs> people into their own demise. We do this all of the time. And again, that's just work avoidance. You know, this person is great at fixing cars. And I need somebody who's going to take care of the other people who fix cars. And since he's really good at it, he's the guy to do it. Because he's going to know <laughs> when they're doing a great job versus when they're doing a terrible job. Because they know everything about the car. I mean, that's a great kind of, I thought about this for three seconds and it makes sense to let go <laughs> kind of methodology. But the reality is, again, I keep on coming back to this word, but it's unfortunately, it's nonsense. It's uh, we've always done it this way, so let's keep doing it this way kind of methodology. As a manager myself, I can tell you categorically that my own staff infinitely more competent in the areas that they work than I could ever be. That's why they're my staff and that's why they're doing those roles. For me to say that I know it better than they do and that's how I'm going to evaluate them is, wow, it's, a, it's some kind of corporate methodology for patting myself on the back that I'm really just not interested in. I'm far more inclined to say, 
I'm hiring you because your resume and your interview and your references suggest that you are massively competent in this skill. This is a skill that I comprehend and have some situational awareness of, but I am not massively competent. And as a result, my assessment of you should not be predicated on my understanding of your topic. It should be predicated on my understanding of you mm-hmm. and our people as a whole and our kind of big picture situational awareness, our, our overarching deliverables. That's very different from saying, I really understand how to fix cars and therefore I'm going to judge you in the quality of the fixing of cars that you've been working towards. I'd sooner trust that my onboarding process, that my uh, employee retention and health processes are all robust enough that I already have the right people in the right place. Now it's just about giving you a sense of checks and balances, giving you an opportunity to recognize the big picture and the values that we're all driving towards so that you know not only how to fix a car, but the best way to go about fixing the car to keep pushing those models that we're trying to, to everyone, that notion that, well, I, there's lots of ways to go about my job. I'm good at it. I know. And now I'm going to course correct and I'm going to pick the best line that works for everybody, not just my own singular deliverable. Um, so to circle back again, I think your, your goal is, Get managers that have high emotional intelligence, have a high ability to empathize with their employees and to interact with them. Don't hire your manager because he was really good at doing the things he's going to manage people on. That's, it's, I, I, I mean, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. It's a, a logical assumption to make to some degree if you're not digging too deep. He's good at this, therefore he'll be good at managing people who are good at this. There's better ways to go about it. Agreed. Uh, I mean, I think that sometimes in my own, I mean, I'm in a very, very different field than you are, but there's also, I think, this element of, you know, when you think of senior managers and who they promote to middle management or to team leaders, often it comes to, well, no one else wants to do it. And so you end up sort of finding the ones who are sort of best at their job and they end up raising up. So what concretely, how as sort of more senior managers, do we change how we are developing the future leaders of a company? Mm, I'd say this, this probably sounds like an easy answer, but Start redirecting some of that energy, effort, and those tens of thousands of hours of your performance tools into sitting down with your managers and working with soft skills, working with, uh, you know, uh, training empathy and getting a sense of um, comprehension of big picture items and looking at the global view of not just what your department is about or what your individual staff is about, but what is your company about? What do you do? What are your key values? There are companies who will uh, put up posters everywhere that say, here are our pillars, here are our core core values. And they're usually one line sentences that are meant to be wonderfully inspirational. Um, And there's a lot of psychology that goes into developing them. You know, it shouldn't be less than five words, but it shouldn't be more than 12. Attention span is an issue. (laughs) 
And they go through this process of these are our core values and they want to just be able to point to that poster and say, you should know this. Ignorance isn't an excuse. It's posted everywhere. Again, complacency and laziness. You should be talking about those things. You should be having conversations on a very regular basis that bring home what those values mean, not what they are. How does that value translate to what I do on a daily basis? And how can I contribute towards that as opposed to working in a vacuum? And if you're going through that process, I guarantee you, you don't need the posters on the wall. And I think that's what we should be striving towards. You're you're making me giggle over here because <laughs> I have to share a story with you. Uh, you know, years ago, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Most most companies, I think, now have these sort of core values or their mission statement or their philosophy. And uh, years ago, we were going through um, an accreditation sort of a process, and of course, part of that was to check. Uh, if employees, in fact, knew what the core values were. And I can remember sitting in a room and nobody could list them. Nobody knew what they were. You know, it was something that was written. It was on a pamphlet. As you say, maybe it was on a wall. And no one had actually internalized what these values were. So I think you make a really good point that we need to be actually having real conversations about our values and understanding them as part of our day-to-day reality if we actually want our companies to reflect those values. I want to come back, Adam, to something that you said earlier. You know, we were talking, I I liked your sort of nine box matrix and you were talking about performance being on one side and, and it made me think of something because I'm curious about, um, you know, what do we do in a team where there are people who may not be performing in certain areas because they have very different strengths, but they are strengths that, have considerable value if we look at the whole team um, as sort of a collective. I'm not sure if I'm making, making myself clear, but I feel like in a team, everybody has very, very different strengths. And there are some who are huge performers, but there are others who maybe it's related to the interpersonal, the team dynamic, the creativity, the out-of-the-box thinking. There are people who bring other elements to the workforce how do we go about assessing them and valuing what they bring? And is that okay? I love this question. Uh, we, we're definitely diverging in a little bit in a super positive way uh, because everything is, everything is absolutely connected. Um, first and foremost, again, and I touched on this a little bit before, and, and, I'll, and I'll admit absolutely it's a bit easier said than done. But if we're going to talk goals, let's make them real goals. They shouldn't be easy. Your onboarding process, your recruitment process, your employee retention process, your training opportunities, all of those things need to be super robust. You can't do away with traditional performance evaluations if you're not hiring quality right from the start. And if you're not continuing to give that, those quality people more and more opportunities to shine. So, If we can take a shortcut for a second on the notion that you do have solid recruitment processes and solid retention processes, and you're working towards things like quality of life, so that you can just look at an employee in terms of how are they producing and take all of the other noise away, you're already probably in a place where they're in a field that they've demonstrated some competence. 
they're going to have strengths and weaknesses on key deliverables. That's inevitable. Um, one thing that I'm really passionate about, and I think we typically, at least in my experience, don't do enough of, is we invest a lot of energy in shoring up those weaknesses. You've got strengths over here, and I'm going to pat you on the head and tell you you did great there, but let's also address these weaknesses. This is what we really need to talk about because we want to make sure that you're as well-rounded as possible. Again, on the surface, there's value to a statement like that. But in reality, I think you're just spinning your wheels. You're investing energy in something that may never pay off. Maybe those are weaknesses for a reason. Maybe the employee in question doesn't enjoy that process. Maybe they just don't get it. And in some cases, maybe they never will. I would much sooner invest my time and energy in saying, here are your strengths. I'm super pleased with all of these points. Let's make sure that we're putting you in an environment where you are constantly and consistently capitalizing on those strengths. Let's turn them from amazing to superhuman. Let's stop investing time and energy in your weaknesses and devote all of that energy instead into bolstering those positives. That's a better experience for the employee it's a more positive experience for the manager. It's far less confrontational. And let's be clear, as an aside, those variances in, in performance metrics that you identified uh, when you kind of brought us into the show, very much are predicated on avoidance of confrontation. Nobody enjoys that. And if you're doing a good job of hiring managers that have emotional intelligence and empathy, as much as they'll understand the methodology of dealing with confrontation, they're going to want to avoid it too, maybe even more so because they feel their pain. And that's a good thing. So, so take the challenge away. Take away this notion of we need to work on your weaknesses. Instead, channel that to where can we situate you? How can we tweak your deliverables as an individual so that your weaknesses don't come into play? Let's just dodge that bullet entirely and focus on your strength. I, I don't think we need well-rounded individuals. I think we need masters as opposed to jacks of all trade. Um, unless you're, I suppose, if you're a very, very small company and everybody needs to wear 12 hats, it's probably a different story. I'll admit that's not where my experience lies, so it'd be hard for me to, to put myself in that environment. But generally speaking, in these bigger environments where performance management is such an issue, you don't need everybody to be good at everything. Celebrate their strengths and just decide their weaknesses. I think that's what's key. I, I love that. It actually makes me think of uh, I once had a performance appraisal uh, of myself, and there was a moment where my boss said to me, having sort of comment, she was talking about my weaknesses and and commented and said and sort of paused and said I know I'm asking you to be someone that you're not <laughs> and it sounded so ridiculous that we both of us burst out laughing <laughs> because it's such a ridiculous thing to say um, and yet that's kind of what we often say to employees when we're harping and harping on 
what is not their strength. Um, as you say, instead of um, trying to really look at how we can capitalize on what their strengths uh, might be. There was an interesting, I, I can't remember the source, but there was another study that showed that there were considerably higher rates of retention and job satisfaction in uh, places of work where employees felt that they were allowed and supported to do what they were best at doing on a daily basis, uh, which makes complete sense if you think about it. That's what makes us feel good and makes us feel motivated at work. Um, I'm wondering what you think about in terms of the link between uh, how we do these performance appraisals and if we can do them in a strength-based way and motivation at work. I think, and I might diverge just a little bit from your question specifically, but I think a lot of it revolves around, again, I feel I feel like I'm coming across as so negative and I apologize for that, but we're all conditioned to this culture of fear at work. Fear of failure, fear of, fear of reprisals, fear of negative performance reviews. We have to cultivate environments where where failure isn't it isn't the nail in the coffin. You know, it, learning experiences are a real thing. If you have to make justifications like the one that you just mentioned, like that story about being told that uh, I know I'm going to ask you to not be yourself here. If you have to make those justifications, maybe you're going about the whole process wrong. You shouldn't have to kind of qualify your statements. You should be generating an environment where you can simply address what went wrong and move on. Mm -hmm. I, to say celebrating failure is a bit extreme, mainly because the connotation sounds very kind of blasé and dismissive and maybe even irresponsible. But the reality is if you identify areas where failure has happened and you course correct accordingly by doing so quickly and also by doing so in environments that aren't necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, capitalize on it and make sure that everybody learns and understands and go through that process regularly so that nobody feels singled out and they don't feel victimized. You create an opportunity for people to, to some degree, self-assess okay, I made an error here. Is this because of a lapse in judgment? Is it because I'm not strong enough in the core competency? Is this a one-off that I want to fix because I love what I do? Or is this really an indicator that maybe I'm not being utilized to my best potential and I want an opportunity to focus elsewhere? And hopefully with regular dialogue with my manager, I'm going to get that opportunity. We're going to come to that conclusion together and then we're going to tweak and if not everything is one-on-one -on -one and some of it is group-oriented with your teams, lots of visibility and lots of that terrible buzzword in the industry, transparency, <laughs> you, get, you also build an opportunity where other people get to see where those vacuums are developing. Person A has a bit of trouble with this. I'm actually really good at this. And in fact, I like it a lot better than what I'm doing now. Maybe I can expose someone to that reality help my coworker, help my manager, and help my team. And, and hey, let's not forget, help myself, you know? All of that happens as simply as demonstrating some dialogue, opening it up to more than just the one-on-one, -on -one, and not browbeating people when they're not perfect, you know? 
Let them try. Let them fail. Um, Speaking of which, don't set up so many check-ins and checks and balances that failure is impossible. Failure is a fantastic teacher, assuming it isn't bringing with it a huge amount of baggage of fear and dread. Let people make mistakes, then demonstrate the consequences of those mistakes and give them situational awareness to be able to avoid it in the future. If you handhold them through the process and protect your industry and your deliverables and your products so relentlessly that those mistakes can't happen, well, you've set up an environment for yourself where that's all you're going to be doing forever because there's Mm -hmm. no growth, there's no improvement, and you're going to have to have – that becomes your job. And you know what? The irony is the amount of time that you're going to invest in those checks and balances is – even greater than the amount of time that you're investing in these outdated performance models. Uh, You know, I'm listening to you and I'm feeling like, first of all, what a healthy work environment that would be. And it's, you're talking about developing a workplace culture that has, that is like permeated with genuine trust, um, which is beautiful and also daunting as a, as a process. I feel like, you know, I got to have to have you back uh, to do a whole show on that topic because I think it's huge. And I think you're right that we all sort of live in this insecurity and fear, no matter what our workplace. Um, I think it's quite rare that that doesn't exist uh, for all kinds of reasons, but yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in a, or worked in a, in a culture where it was okay and it was genuinely okay for everybody to, to fail and learn and grow and to do it publicly and together. I think that would be kind of uh, amazing. I'm going to be mulling that over all day. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're slowly coming to the end of our hour. I want to ask you, you know, as we've been talking about so many things in terms of, you know, how we want to give feedback and coach and build the strengths of our employees. If you were to think about your employees, what is your ultimate hope for them? What is it that you actually want for them? So if we come back for a second to the nine box model that I was talking about earlier, where you've got performance on one axis and you've got um, potential on another axis, what I would like to see is for the gap between where my employee is and where they could be in terms of potential getting narrower with every cycle, whether you're revisiting every month, every quarter, uh, anything less than any, every quarter, I think you're being irresponsible, but I've already beat that topic to death. Um, (laughs) There's an opportunity to, to track that growth for me to say, you're living up to your potential. And it sounds super cliche, but, but that's, that's, that's what goal orientation is about, just closing that gap. I'm less concerned with closing your performance gap than closing your potential gap. And being able to see that develop on a regular basis is going to be rewarding for everyone involved. Um, and so if there's one thing that I wish for my staff, it's for them to see where their potential is with my help, hopefully, and, and work towards narrowing that gap all the time. Or even better, someday coming to a point where you change that potential bar. The efforts that you've done have taken you so far that now you have a new potentiality and a new thing to drive towards. In my mind, that's the ultimate in success. 
for sure. And and in focusing on the potential, it does it does lead to the performance piece. So it's not like we're saying you're saying, um, you know, I want to focus on reducing that gap uh, in terms of potential at the expense of performance because they are so linked. Um, I think that's a, a a pretty awesome goal. Let's say let's say there are listeners out there uh, like ourselves who are leaders or managers and who've been listening and, you know, they've bought into what you've said. They believe that um, this sort of alternative model of timely feedback focused on people's potential is the way to go, but have absolutely no idea where to start. What would be the one thing you might say to them um, in terms of how we can shift how we're looking at um, supporting and coaching our employees. Do you have sort of one message to leave them with? Wow. Okay. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is detrimental to everything around us. Um, we've always <laughs> done it this way is equally detrimental. I think a lot of what I've talked about revolves around having a certain level of faith in your staff, in your system to know that you have the right people in the right place. And all you need to do is, Give a few nudges here and there and course correct where necessary. The thing that I may be left out that fits really nicely here is have a little more faith in yourself. <laughs> you've gotten to where you've gotten for a reason. And there is no way that you are going to be able to put real trust and real confidence in your employees if you don't start by trusting your own judgment and your ability to get it done. If you just look at it as this mountain to climb and feel overwhelmed, you're selling yourself short. It's genuinely not that hard. It's work, yes, but trust your gut. Trust your instincts and trust everything that got you here to this point. Trust every experience you've had where you went through a process and you thought, this doesn't feel quite right. I wish I could do it a little differently. That's the beauty of being a manager is to some degree, you're empowered for exactly that. So sell it to yourself, and once you have, selling it to others is going to be comparatively easy. So it's a matter of believing in our own potential as we are trying to believe in the potential of our employees. Love it. What a great example of heart-based leadership. Fadam, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I am absolutely genuine when I say that I feel like we could talk about this topic for days and days. So one day I do hope you come back on the show. And meanwhile, I want to wish you a very wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a terrific experience. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> Super. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Vadim Mercurio raising some tasty food for thought that I'm going to be chewing over for the rest of the day about how important we as leaders or managers can be in the development and motivation of others in the workplace. Join me, same time, same place, next week when I have my first guest from Down Under. I was going to try to say that with an accent, but I will spare you that. Next week, I've got Jamie Rose Brown on, uh, otherwise known as the Happiness Ninja from Australia, who's going to be talking about the power of connection and simple kindness. Until then, as we get ready to jump into another work week tomorrow, oh my goodness, does the weekend fly by. 
I'm reminded of a truth that I read very recently, actually, in an article by HR guru Mary Schaefer, who said, it's a powerful thing when someone believes in you. This is Maya, and I am out. Day morning, still got my day job, but I feel so free. 